besser. Cool. Um, yeah, so like most generally, I'm interested in your philosophy of religion. Um, mm -hmm. That means your overall metaphysics, uh, ontology, epistemology, um, ethics, theory of, um, yeah, theory, like general metaphysics underlying your religious worldview um, would be my general kind of mm -hmm. question to throw over to you. Um, I've, I've personally followed many of your conversations with John Vivekey, um, your conversations with Garrett, um, my friend from the Symbolic World. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's different touch points where I've heard you discuss your perspectives and interests and influences. Um, but I'd love to, yeah, just kind of put that to you and, and, and then maybe we can, can kind of go from there. Yeah, sure. I'm sure we'll find lots of places we can go from the main trunk. Um, so I tried to stay close to the sort of mainstream Christian Neoplatonic tradition. And this will have many branches and it's easy to get lost in the sidetracks, I find. So for instance, you can compare the way that Augustine got Christianity and Neoplatonism together versus the way, let's say, that Saint Maximus the Confessor pulled those two same things together, and you can find you can find differences and start arguing very much. But I I don't have super set positions about like those branches. What I'm much sure about is the the main trunk of it, and that main trunk is actually common with even some other traditions to to a large extent. So the basics of it are a metaphysics where you have different layers of being um, comes from like it can go from mere potential at the very bottom of the world so let's say in in genesis when it's written that in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void this is prime matter it's aristotle's prime matter it's just potentiality there was, a, there was a whole hermetic philosophy and tradition which built up around the prime, the prima materia, uh, which was from, from Aristotle, um, oh, okay. which is yeah, an interesting part. So. Yeah. I don't know much about the tradition. Um, but yeah, and on the other end of the spectrum, you have immaterial forms or patterns. So that would be the heavens. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So it would be Plato or Aristotle's forms. Um, and these are abstract structures. You can think about math, about... Pythagoras, the mon yeah. Pythagoras's monad and his music of the spheres, music of yeah. the spheres. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly, connected to that. Uh, though, and ultimately, both of those things, like the, the, the earth and the heavens are like they, they both come from God, they are sort of both. And it and then it's it gets tricky to talk about what happens at this scale because it's so far from us, but like it's two different creations, two different activities, the two different poles of creation, you can say. And it's within those two poles that everything will exist. So things will sort of 
concretize as they go down the, the layers of that hierarchy. And as you go up, then things will become more and more structured. So will they become more real as well? When you say structured, will things become more real? Will you become closer to the source and origin of being? Um, when you go up mm -hmm. the this tiered structure, this hierarchy? That's a good question. I'm not sure because and see, if you take the Greeks, things would definitely get more real as you went higher. Um, but there's a, a tweak in, in Christianity because we don't say that God just created the heavens. We think that God created the earth as well. And further with the incarnation, we think that like the reality of all of those layers of being became sort of solidly affirmed. So like the... And there are different thinkers in the Christian tradition who put this, let's say, in more stronger terms than others. So let's say in, in, in let's say in Augustine, it's not all that clear. Maybe that things get realer. That it's not that maybe in Augustine things get really do get realer as you move up and up. In some others, it's not as clear. Uh, but I, I, I would just get realer as you repent in Augustine. That isn't that right? Like his confessions is all about how like being is becoming real through his repentance and his going over of his whole temporal and finite existence. Um, yeah. Getting rid of the, the parasites on being that evil constitutes. Mm -hmm. So so then it, it, it can be interesting because maybe in those cases, like some like something that is low on that hierarchy, but that isn't being parasitized by evil could be more real maybe than a human who has access to all kinds of forms, but it is also like parasitized by evil and sin. So then has to get cleansed from those sins to become more real than the things that, that's lower. So I'm not sure where I would put. That's interesting. Yeah. I would have to think more about it and see what different thinkers say about what's more real in all of this reality um, and all of those, those layers. Um, yeah, I, I would tend to, I, I don't know, to be honest, I, I, I definitely do think that all of those layers can be real, let's say, and this union happens at all kinds of levels, the union of potential and form. So you have that in particles and atoms and molecules, you have this in organisms, in humans, we, all of those we, layers. Can we experience it, do you think? Can we experience, mean? I mean, can we experience, um, the way things come together, the union of heaven and earth, um, potentiality and form and mm -hmm. like pattern and potentiality, like when those things are come together properly, is that mm -hmm. something we can like personally experience as human beings? Mm -hmm. Is that accessible yeah. in our experience? Because yeah. I've been looking a lot at um, phenomenology as mm -hmm. a philosophical method, and I think mm -hmm. it's a, a really interesting key to talking about all of this stuff. Um, yeah because it puts experience first um, yeah yeah i don't know if you read um david bentler has a great book titled the the experience of god being consciousness bliss and i find that he lays out really well different paths to experiencing god or those different aspects of god you can say um 
And like through the book, it's sort of an exercise at the same time. Like he's giving you arguments, but at, at the same time, he's like helping you see those, th those things and practice so that you can notice them in different aspects of your life. So like we have a, a drive, like things in general sort of strive for intelligibility, you can say. They strive for heaven, for patterns. And you can see that in everything. Uh, wait, wait, wait. What do you mean? Things in general. So that's an interesting claim. And I think it's worth qualifying that claim because I would say that rational beings, for example, strive for intelligibility. Um, do all animate beings, do animals all strive for intelligibility? I wouldn't maybe go that far. Would plants like and minerals, would they strive for intelligibility? Um, depends what we mean by that intelligibility. Mm -hmm. yeah, 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 it's possible, yeah. but... Uh, yeah, yeah, you you're right. That a bit? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Because I, I used in some articles intelligibility sort of with a capital I, and I mean it sort of in 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 logos or where forms come from in general. But I realize it could just be a confusing way of putting it. So let me say instead that everything strives for the logos from the place where forms come from. So let's say in in anything that you can take really, in so far as it is formed then you, uh, you are seeing some matter, some potential that is being shaped by a certain pattern, a certain form. So it can be with anything. Like you take a, you can take a proton and that proton has some matter. It could be, it could decompose into all kinds of different particles. It could just disappear into potentiality, but it stays together in the pattern of a proton. So that's a kind of striving that like those fundamental particles have towards the form of proton. And it's true for everything that exists. You have matter being raised up into a certain form. And it happens fractally. So within me, I have all of those, let's say, protons whose particles are being raised up into the form of protons. But at the scale of me as a whole, like all of my protons, all of my cells are being raised up into the form of GP as well. Um, and we can experience it whenever we whenever we see well David Bentlart will explain everything we see something good or true or beautiful we see something getting raised up to the logos to the right, platonic argument right yeah exactly mm -hmm. so we can experience it um truth goodness yeah yeah uh virtues in the world virtues being embodied in the world by people uh, in certain stories, saints, virtues, holy people. Um, yeah. Yeah, because those are all instances where someone or something is being raised into a higher pattern. And mm -hmm. yeah, then there, there are qualificatives we can add about this because you can be raised up into an evil pattern that can happen. <laughs> as well and then we have to say that well okay you're getting raised up into a pattern that is somehow higher but at the same time it's parasitizing some even higher level pattern so it's a bad so you have to you would have to qualify some things just because something is higher it's not necessarily better but and the whole like, power of literature is about the possibility of the transformation of a character from one point into yeah, yeah a, a better yeah. usually but maybe yeah. maybe it's a descent as well yeah yeah yeah, it can it can teach us about how 
like what the, what what the map of those patterns look like so it's why we we like literature it's why we spend billions every year on like making movies and mm -hmm. we spend tons and tons of hours watching them is because we're learning about how how things come together in patterns mm -hmm. uh, especially at the human scale that's what movies do but they're like in the sciences if you study chemistry or if you study also something bigger maybe economics and like in all of those cases, even though you're getting further from the human level, you, you're still studying patterns and how things reach into patterns. And there's still beauty and truth in, in those things. We don't find them as interesting typically as what happens closer to the human level. It's normal because we're humans, but still like every, every, every place where we see beauty and truth and goodness is a place where we're seeing some things being raised up into patterns. Mm -hmm raised up into real patterns ontologically real ontologically prior uh ontologically grounding patterns yep. Yep. and this ontological priority is the foundation of knowledge really instead of opinion knowledge is when your thoughts are conforming to the pattern the logos mm -hmm. the order mm -hmm. of the thing that's being contemplated yeah um, Mm. It's, it's interesting you say that even something like a proton or maybe a cell or, or, or an organ or an organism is striving, I think is the word you used. Mm -hmm. uh, they're striving towards logos. Um, mm -hmm. I agree they exhibit a logos. They exhibit a rationally intelligible order. Um, it's such an interesting way of phrasing it, striving towards that logos, I guess it's true, because there is like an epicenter in a cell, like the the, uh, the nucleus, which is organizing all of that information in the cell and the activity of it. And um, there's a tendency towards that order, I think. And mm -hmm. yeah, if you want to think of that as an animus or a spirit in the whole of nature towards mm -hmm. that order, that's pretty, pretty beautiful thought. And then the what makes humans specifically distinct is the the the, the noose or the the rationality, um, which seems to be able to abstractly or simply um, formulate these forms and these patterns, and that's what the whole sphere of human intelligibility is. Um, strangely, so all like the laws of physics and mathematical theorems and things like this mm -hmm. into exist in that on that plane in that realm um, yeah but what it about is. higher what about angels and demons that's stuff mm -hmm. that i've thought a lot about like how yeah. do they exist and how do mm -hmm. cities exist because yeah. i do think that cities do exist in mm -hmm. so far as they have an anima towards a logos you could say exactly mm -hmm. the same as a cell or a proton yeah cities do have that anima or the animus towards logos and higher order and mm -hmm. the expression of goodness, truth, and beauty. Um, cities have history. Cities have been known at different points in space and time. And so then how can we coherently speak about Bristol as a idea, as an ADOS, as, a, as an idea of a city? How can that exist across space and time? The different, mm -hmm. different ways you can participate in it. And then also, what are the higher intelligences? Ooh. 
what the higher intelligences that reign in, in the city, what patterns of worship are set up um, towards demonic or angelic um, realities and how, what is the difference between angels and demons? Like some of mm. those questions I think are quite fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's similar to the other layers we mentioned. So in the same way that you can have a human that assembles a whole bunch of cells under one pattern, under one, one form, then this can happen with many humans assembling under one principality, one demon or one angel. So like we have many examples of this in, in scripture, but we can look at everything going on around us as well. And we can see groups. The local authorities, the local authorities are like political authorities, aren't they? Almost like literally speaking, like, um, aren't they the more proximal authorities, like the authorities of the city or the authorities of the state? Um, and how do they relate to spiritual authorities? Yeah, well, there are even things before you get to spiritual, uh, even before you get to, let's say, the city, because a family can also be the same thing. Sure. Where in, the, in the same way that, uh, and really the criteria to evaluate this kind of stuff is, are you dealing with something that is reducible or not? So when, let's say, we say that the we as a human, let's say that a human is not, reducible to itself, but like there's this, often in modern cognitive science, people will speak of emergence. There's something that is above the mm -hmm. cells that you cannot reduce to the cells that will constrain the emergence of potential uh, from the cells. You're dealing in, with- In Aristotle's logic, he would call that a species. And I think he might even call it an accident or like an idiosyncrasy, which differentiates a species, a particular from a genus, a broader genus, the general categories of the genus and the universals um, are particularized through species differentiation. And so like that differentiation mm -hmm. process is happening. Um, yeah, through accident yeah. or idiosyncrasy in Aristotle's logic. Um, okay, so that's that's like from the going top down. That's the the, the terms that he uses. I know that's that going, tree. Okay, I know that going bottom up also. He says, uh, like he, things can assemble in accidental forms or substantial forms. Substantial. So in, yeah. So okay. in the case of accidental forms, so let's say um, the way that uh, let's say these glasses come together. Mm -hmm. Well, the these don't these are reducible like i can reduce the glasses to their components i could probably reduce them to their molecules and i wouldn't really lose any sort of explanatory power but in some other cases like that of a human if i try to reduce a human to its cells then i'm i would lose something like i would lose consciousness i would lose rationality. definitely definitely so in the there's something the there's something fundamentally irreducible about our being in the world, like your mm -hmm. being, JP, and mine, as human mm -hmm. persons, there's something fundamentally irreducible about that. Um, yeah. I would also call that accidental, like Heidegger would use the word thrownness to describe mm -hmm. the existential condition. I think we, you and I are both thrown in a certain existential sense in terms of language, location, 
age, era, mm-hmm. all of these different influences, which mm-hmm. Heidegger would call our throneness existentially. Yep. Um, and I think that could be associated in Aristotle's logic with the accident as the differentiating principle into a human person. Um, but yes. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I it's, it's a different fair. kind of, it's a different use of accidents. Often Aristotle, when he talks of, let's say, accidental form, it's sort of looking at it bottom up and seeing that it's not coming together as a single substance that okay. is irreducible. Um, but maybe you could do it sort of the other way in Aristotle um, thinking, well, you have, because what, what Heidegger says sounds to me more like, I mean, it's about considering the accidents around you, maybe, uh, considering the, so it's not the fact that you're an accident, but you're sort of thrown into a world of accidents, maybe that you can say. Um, but, but, and so then for Husserl, the phenomenologist would then say, well, that, that this chair in my room at this time, this particular chair mm-hmm. is the one that I have is an accident, but what I perceive in the chair is its universal essence. And Husserl makes this existence and essence distinction. And he says, it's nothing about the existential uh, particularity of this chair that makes it a chair. It's actually its pure universality, its pure essence that uh, is a coherent meaning or logos, we could say, about the chair. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's almost on a ground beyond its temporality, its Mm-hmm. existence and time it's actually in a, on an eternal plane yeah. there yeah and it happens like through humans in this case so it's interesting and you can see this like right from genesis and even like at thousands of years ago you had let's say philo of alexandria speaking about this kind of stuff where in the first few chapters of genesis at creation you can see everything being recapitulated in adam and recapitulation and like, you can even trace back the etymology. I think recapitulation is about like being brought under one head. So like you have all of those different layers that are being created in Genesis. So there's the the heavens, the earth, then there'll be like the light, then there'll be like water, like all, all, all stuff comes on down right to the middle. And Generations. Then, yeah. And with Adam straight in the middle, on the like the sixth day it's interesting because you see you'll see adam participate in that pattern where lewis has a nice phrase he says that humans are amphibians in that we live we we have access to the realm of ideas the abstract realm of heaven but at the same time we're also material creatures so we we bridge between those two in our being and we can bring the world outside also in union because we are those amphibians so let's say when adam names the animals he's taking let's say something that exists already outside in the world like a, like a cow but by naming it he's bringing it into a higher kind of pattern so you we were speaking earlier about the chair there's something let's say that makes the chair not spatial temporal when it enters into contact with a human who mm-hmm. is not not just a spatial temporal creature. So by naming mm-hmm. the animal, bringing it into a pattern with humans that have access to the heavens, to the forms, we're bringing creation, like we're sort of, St. Maximus speaks 
of man as a laboratory where we sort of pull creation and we raise it up so mm. it's something you you can see say, in genesis uh, in Adam. we raise it up interesting we take spatial temporal things and bring them into a non-spatial temporal reality and we can do the we, let's, talk, let's not talk more about this because i remember you yeah. one of the most striking pieces of content that i looked on on your channel was this thing you did about prayer and yeah. um I, it seems like that's probably deeply connected to this because yeah. i was reflecting on just how fundamental prayer is prayer is asking and um there were three estates in the medieval in medieval Christendom, those mm -hmm. that pray, those that fight, and those that work, which were the mm -hmm. monks, the knights, and the farmers. Mm -hmm. And the monks were the ones that pray, and praying means to ask. And actually, you don't get any uh, intellectual tradition at all unless you pray, ask. <laughs> because yeah. to ask, to posit a question, is to formulate a question uh, and ask to, to seeking a certain kind of knowledge to, to be gained there. Um, so that asking, that praying is really, really connect, deeply connected. It's like the wellspring of our intellectual traditions where the monks were the ones who preserved all of the, all of the traditions of antiquity, the Greek philosophers and, and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, in all traditions, really. Like there was, there's no intellectual tradition ever no. that didn't start from receiving something mm -hmm. mm. yeah um and then they basically prayed like the di different disciplines history theology philosophy uh, all of these different domains branched out from praying and you could even not make that argument about early scientists where a lot of them were christian and were basically praying they were meditating and praying upon certain fundamental questions and it yielded certain uh, spiritual fruits in the form of knowledge, we could say. Mm. Um, so, so how does prayer order reality then? Because you were just describing it as raising up, and I really like that because I'm looking around my bedroom, looking at the books, and these are all ways that paper and ink and ideas and experience have been raised up and coalesced into these things called books that I have, and okay, that's cool, or the different artwork, or the different things around, this all has been raised up, yeah, in a sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It happens in, like, it, it's it's a dialogue, and it happens fractally. So, let's say you can take something, something simple, like maybe you're, you're trying to solve a certain problem around you, at your job, I don't know, maybe you're, you're trying to build something, and like you need to make the pieces fit together. So you're like taking this multiplicity of things in spatial temporal reality. And you're, you're wondering, like you're asking a question to your intellect, to your reason, to the part of yourself that has access to non-spatial temporal reality. And you're wondering how do those pieces fit together? I'm trying to make a chair, let's say. Like how do those pieces fit together? And by questioning this abstract non-spatial temporal part of yourself, you can let's say I have a flash where you see geometrically how to fit the different pieces together. And mm -hmm. geometry is something that is not spatial temporal. Like it's a, mm -hmm. like you're dealing with truths that are not spatial temporal. They will unfold in space and time, but they don't depend on space and time. Let's say the Pythagorean It's theory, an activity of pure reason, isn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, geometry is an activity of pure reason. And so it's yep. like pure mathematics. And uh, Immanuel Kant's critique of pure reason was all about that pure reason. And then he had a critique of practical reason as well, which is more about morality in particular cases mm -hmm. and stuff like this. Um, yeah. And then, like, once you, but, so you ask that question, you have that insight, and that insight is a kind of receiving. Yeah. So, like, you prayed by wondering, like, mm -hmm. how do those things fit together and asking something not, not spatial temporal. Mm -hmm. You receive an answer, but this answer is a kind of, is a kind of seed. It's abstract, like you know all the pieces fit together, but you still have to fit them together like concretely in space and time. Mm -hmm. So this idea will unfold, you will unfold it. So once you receive, you go and act out that solution. So that's for a chair, but it's true at higher levels of reality as well. Maybe you are having problems with your family and your family is starting to fall apart. So the different pieces of your family are starting to fragment. So you, you take this concrete, spatial temporal problem and you you ask for a solution you pray you you ask for like spiritual truths psychological or, truths. or, or to your family members you pray like asking yeah. to speak asking to meet to come together these kind of prayers yep. call into being higher levels of participation and engagement with reality yeah um, and then and that whole empathic right. discourse is prayer like it's asking and being sensitive and compassionate yep. and stuff. Yeah, and maybe together as you're having a certain dinner, for instance, and you're like you're gathering and asking those questions, and you're together praying, trying to ask like what can we do to fix the situation, you get an insight. Maybe maybe a few people in the family have it at the same time, maybe one person, but like you'll get an insight, you'll get something abstract, a kind of seed that you can then work out and apply in your family. So that's you're mediating between heaven and earth when you're doing that. You're taking a concrete problem, finding an abstract solution, and then applying that. Uh, to the concrete world. And it happens at even higher scales. So let's say if you're an, a bishop, then you're dealing with this kind of issue, but at the scale of thousands or tens of thousands of people, and mm. you're, st you're still taking into account, let's say the fragmentation that you see and praying, asking for an abstract solution to that, which you can then apply. So it's what, is a, what is a demon? Uh, a demon is when, well, Typically, we want to say that they're higher level patterns, something that's higher than ourselves. We were talking earlier about angels and demons of cities, for instance. And so it's possible that the higher level patterns are lined up towards the ultimate good. In those cases, you're dealing with like angels that haven't fallen. So maybe a church could be a good example of that, where people are gathering together into a higher level pattern that mm -hmm. is ultimately oriented towards the yeah. ultimate so the place where all patterns come from yeah but people could also so that's gather... an angel so that's an angel communion yeah. in a cathedral city is an angelic principle so even going to participate in um in the services within that cathedral or that church is a form of participation in an angelic pattern would that be reasonable to think about it that uh, way maybe i could tweak maybe i would tweak some details like maybe because mm -hmm. because we do, we think that we ultimately participate in god himself but we do that through mm -hmm. like communion under higher level patterns so communion in, in a church which is a body which is like the i wouldn't say that the church it is 
let's say the, the parish I go to is named uh, after St. Thomas Aquinas. So I wouldn't say that we gather, let's say in Aquinas himself, uh, but we definitely gather, we definitely gather with him. Like the pattern of the church is like at least close to Aquinas. I'm not, I would have to think more to find like the exact relationship, but like, uh, so, because I'm just not sure like the, how the details of the hierarchy would go. Uh, I know that we were definitely with Aquinas and even, you can even see how he's shaping us because we still like talk about him, we read about him, we celebrate some, some festivals. So like we're, we're taking some of our own lives and sort of turning it, it up to Aquinas to think about our lives. And this, then this will also have impact on us. Like, because we read him, then we'll have some influences that come from this. Like it, it will shape the way we see certain things, we say certain things, like it shapes some of the things that I've been saying to you today because I've been reading Aquinas. So we, I wouldn't necessarily say that we become, let's say the body of Aquinas, um, but maybe like, because we're not just that, we would have to find out the details. We certainly gather under him somehow, uh, but we're not just him either. Uh, and like, he doesn't just depend on us. I wouldn't say that Aquinas disappears if there's no more people praying to him. So anyways, I would have to think more about the details, but um, we can already, I think, start thinking about demons because I think like you asked me twice about it and we sort of veered off. So I'm going to try to answer it. But <laughs> in, the, in the case of demons, it would be people gathering under a pattern that is higher but that isn't directed towards the ultimate good. So, yeah. it would so be I, thought, I, I thought of it as accepting all of that worship onto yourself. Hmm. The pattern that does that is a character, a spirit, a pattern. If you accept all of the worship, because the whole of reality is worship. If the hmm. whole of reality is prayer, truly, then it's going to be flowing up and going to be flowing up and there's going to be receiving and giving of prayer isn't it all the way yeah. along the ontological yeah. chain and so at some point you could just rebel and accept it all onto yeah. yourself as the end of yeah. that instead of offering yeah. it higher yeah um, yeah i think that's good yeah as a parasite like you just like you insert yourself into that chain and you sort of absorb things rather than turning it up turning it so, up. sort of like mr smith and the matrix I, it's been too long since i watched it I, I can't say. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, okay. Parasites. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cool. And um, there, there are other things you could probably say, like René Girard has some really good insights about how groups can gather positively or negatively. So I think that in the case of, let's say, a demon that's taking all of the praise onto itself, you'll also see some scapegoating happening below. So people will be like, because it's not a functioning hierarchy, because they're, if, you, if you're cutting yourself up, like if the, the demon is like taking everything in, onto himself, like he also won't receive things from higher. He's not like turning things higher mm. in the hierarchy. So he's not receiving from higher in the hierarchy. And that yeah. means that to keep surviving, you'll have to sacrifice things below. So Gérard explains that what, what happens- That's in, crazy. Yeah. So Girard explains that if you look at archaic societies, they're always sacrificing like people. Like mm -hmm. first up, that's how it started. But oh, JP, because I was talking to my friend recently who's really yeah. into his Aztec and Mayan yeah. mythology. He's deep into it. And he was saying that when the Catholics came to the Aztecs, the Aztecs were ritually engaging in blood sacrifice 
yeah. on top of a hierarchy. Um, and basically, I was like, I recognize that as the scapegoat pattern yeah. from Girard. Um, but also, I learned about it in the Lord of Spirits and the Day of Atonement rituals and stuff like that with the scapegoat. And I was like, oh my God, that's a scapegoat pattern. And so yeah. when Christ comes into that culture, it's just an inversion of that whole hierarchy of the scapegoat is the scapegoat and it's like yep. the key to the it's like it's like the logos key to that to that whole mythology that whole mythology and so they recognized yep. it and they also recognized that he poured out his blood and that blood was involved as a sacrament and they recognized that as well in their own way and like yep. there are all these deep um narrative continuities really and yep. uh, re religious ritual continuities yeah yeah yeah, so the conquistadors realized that when they saw the Aztecs, they thought, well, they were worshipping a demon there, because that's what demons do. Like, they take the worship unto themselves, and to do that, they need to sacrifice things below. And, like, that's what allows the group to come together. Like, the Aztecs, if you look at them, the way Girard would explain it is that they would have all kinds of chaos going on in their city, like people would blame one another and you'd have, like in, in, in any society, like you have things that fall apart. And the way that you resolve that is that you need to find another way to come together. Like, because you can't have a society where everyone is going their own way. Like you have to come together somehow. So yeah. you can either do it in a correctly functioning hierarchy, as we said earlier, like in a church where you all worship together something higher that itself is turned higher. Yeah. Or if you don't do that to an angel, then you're going to have to do it in a way that sacrifices something else. Like, so Girard explains that as people get angry at one another at some point, naturally, people will start to blame some kind of people or someone in particular more than others. And everybody can pile on. And that allows everybody to come together against one person. So mm -hmm. you sacrifice that person, you come together again. But in doing that, you worship something you worship a demon. That's that's also what it means. So I think you worship something that accepts that as payment in a way, right? Yep. 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 Accepts the death as payment for for order. Yeah. Mm, that's what you're worshiping. Yeah. Um. Yeah, the angels and demons one's a really good one. Like, because it's I think it's so real how they exist in the world in terms of just narratives and how mm. they conquer whole spirits like they actually i feel like they offer like demonic powers um you know like how um satan said to christ in the desert of like offering him the kingdoms of the world and all of this splendor basically and he was and christ was like denying him through humility mm -hmm. i think one who's living in pride can similarly make bargains with that voice of satan who will afford certain powers and certain techne mm -hmm. and enhancement um some kind of dark enhancement which will be forged through prayer and sacrifice at that kind of altar and i think yeah. the whole cycles of criminal behavior and things like this are governed by those kind of spirits and those kind of unholy deals and then also repentance the possibility of repentance in the judicial system I've watched like crime documentaries with like um, big legal cases and the whole question of whether someone's fundamentally evil and, and you watch 15 people discussing it 
who were in the in the jury, and they were discussing: Is this person fundamentally to their core evil, or is there hope and possibility of repentance and redemption for their soul? And that is a question of free choice because what that would mean would be that they are in deep patterns of prayer. If it comes down to free will, then they're willing this kind of satanic pattern into being and that they could repent and turn the other way and will an angelic pattern into being. And um, yeah, I mean, that's all there in the narratives of, of justice, of crime and justice and all of that, that whole area of the world. And that's deep, deeply theological stuff. Sorry, I was muted. Do you put uh, that in um, the same kind of metaphysics that I laid out earlier? Like, uh, how do you, what's your background in theology? We just talked about me so far, but yeah, I'd, I'd like to have an idea of where you, you come from as well. Yeah, that's cool. So I think it comes down to like Plato for me because every other author following Plato is basically a commentary on Plato in some sense. Like there's just so many, so much uh, debt we owe to Plato's work. Um, anyway, so this like kind of medieval discarded image of a mm -hmm. cosmic eros, a cosmic love, a cosmic harmo harmony, which was, um, poetically envisioned by Dante, which was there in Plotinus's Enneads, which is there in Plato's Symposium, mm. um, Boethius, Pseudo-Dionysius, like all of these authors, um, synthesizing this vision of an ultimately good telos, an ultimately good eminent, um, super abundant source, which then flows down and out, structuring lower la layers of being. And that there's a mystical way in that the freedom of our souls can then aspire to desire, which is what eros means. So Plato's symposium is all, all about eros, and Diotima's ladder is saying that I desire a proximal good, I desire something lower, and then I elevate my, my eros towards higher kind of ideals, mm -hmm. which is exactly what Dante's whole narrative is, his personal narratives and the writing of the Commedia. Like that whole story arc is governed by that basic pattern of deity and this ladder of love, the, the aspiring heart higher and higher and higher still. Um, so that mm, Christian metaphysics of love, I think, uh, or Eros is really powerful, beautiful and important. And um, I think that underlies a lot of the currents in contemporary philosophy in the humanities um, in Absolutely. really important. Well, in the, in the sense that um, value, concern, uh, worship, um, all uh, afford meaning. Like that's how we um, that's how we value, and humanity is concerned with the way in which we value. And I think under undergirding that is this whole discourse that goes back to Plato um, about the ontological foundations of the arche or the logos or the eidos of things. Percival picking that up in a continental tradition, talking about his essences. Merleau-Ponty putting that in the body, um, talking about our embodied, the phenomenology of the body. 
Um, Jordan Peterson and John Vakey both mentioned a book that I'm going to have arriving, hopefully now or sometime soon, um, mm -hmm. called An Ecological Approach to Visual Perception, I think it's mm -hmm. called, which is another thing about the brain being embodied and the way in which the body uh, is phenomenologically primary or something like this. Um, anyway, so that whole con that whole rich continental tradition of philosophy, the, um, the phenomenologist in particular, is so fascinating. Pajot, Peterson, you can't make sense of them without the phenomenological tradition. If you grant certain phenomenological assumptions, then you open the door to everything they have to say. But if you deny those assumptions, then that's a fundamental point where you can diverge and I think that's what some maybe naturalist philosophies might want to do they might mm -hmm. want to say look we don't grant your experience epistemic validity we don't grant experience we deny that and I think there is a move to wanting to deny that perhaps in logical positivism or perhaps in some forms of naturalism mm -hmm. which I'd like to learn more about but I'm, that's my understanding is that that's the move they'd want to make they want to say look we empirical sense data what can be empirically validated this is our epistemic source of validity guys it works really well for the empirical sciences uh, just leave the whole personal experience religious experience thing out that's not valid and so do you see what i'm saying i think that's a very important yeah. point in the discourse mm -hmm. which has to be recognized and thought through because i do grant those premises and follow along with mm -hmm. what Peterson and Pajot and many other thinkers who I would call phenom phenomenologically informed thinkers are saying. Um, but there are important questions to be raised right at the beginning. You know, is, yeah. is, it is it valid to investigate our experience in this way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think John, John Verveke does a good job explaining that bifurcation in his episode on Galileo. I think maybe it's called the death of the universe, but he explains that, well, there was, I think, no, I don't remember all the historical circumstances. There was a lot of them and John explains many of quality, them. Quality gets denied, quantity gets affirmed, is the basic yeah. epistemic shift in Galileo, which but is tremendously yeah. important. Yeah. Um, because so like- Flattening, he, flattening. Yeah. Well, he, he, he like he still ends up being a realist, but he says that the only real things are the ones we have access to via mathematics. Like we can't trust even our senses, but we can trust mm. the math. So mm. that's sort of the move. Still yeah. quite realist. That's still quite platonic realist, actually. Yeah, yeah. That's but interesting, it, isn't it? But it ends up it ends up dying later, though. Like because it ma it made sense when Galileo. It made some sense when Galileo made that move. I think there was also just there was also social chaos sort of going around at the time. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it facilitated facilitated the the intuition that we can't trust our sense perceptions, that we can't trust our own phenomenology. But at the same time, like science was starting to give some results. So it made sense to put sort of all of our faith on mathematics. Uh, and it sort of went fairly strong for a while, but at some point, like there started just to there started to be too many issues. So in in recent decades, there's the problem of consciousness that has become super clear. There's also the the fact that in cognitive science, when people started 
to okay well now that we've tried to mathematize everything can we can we maybe try to mathematize the human mind and then realizing that the it sort of was there and not even just with phenomenal consciousness that's our experience of things but also with rationality like it doesn't seem that you can sort of reduce rationality to something lower because if you try then you end up denying rationality so you're then like you 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 end up using something that is not rational to try to talk about rationality but in doing that you presuppose rationality so you're, you're sort of undercut yourself that's a platonic point but there are naturalist thinkers like uh, putnam and uh, like john who make that uh, that kind of argument and there's also just facts in, in to try to build robots like very concretely to try to build things that act as if they had reason you end up having to deny like some basic materialist assumptions um you have to try to put things in a body and like have them experiment like so you you give your let's say your computer it won't be intelligent if it's just a program you have to give it a body and you have to like put it in an environment where it interacts with things so that's like jj gibson that's one of the things he talks about in the, in that book um but so this basic move of okay well we'll be we will give primacy to something beside consciousness namely to mathematics like it ends up not working in practice uh, there's also the fact that just in the sciences themselves you can't really reduce it's not obvious that you can reduce things like all the way down because what you end up really like is that there's nothing at the ground layer there there aren't it's not it's not that obvious that you have particles that you can reduce everything to like it's it looked plausible until maybe about 100 years ago but now it looks like if you wanted to reduce everything down at the lowest what you have is just potentiality so and you can't just reduce things to potentiality so that doesn't really work mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and and also so you have all of these arguments and also on the other side you have just what happened in the 20th century like the idea that we could just get everything through abstract detached reason and like the world would just keep getting better because we have a good grasp on reality finally it just like totally collapsed with the two world wars and it's clear mm -hmm. in europe like one reason why positivism is still going stronger in the especially that's in actually America. in chess as well i'm really into my chess and in the history of chess you have a romantic era in the 19th century which then collapses under like the the sheer logicism of like Steinitz and the um, the Russian school, which dominates basically the whole of the 20th century chess. And then it collapses oh. to uh, Fischer in the 70s, who plays um, the Trojan, I think it is. I can't remember the master he plays. Yeah. And uh, so that's really, really interesting. I'm not familiar at all with that story. Can you can you say that again? What's the, what was the so, so Steinitz is a German master in the 19th century who introduces yep. this idea of like logical rigor to the chess game, control yep. the center, develop your pieces. Like there's certain, yep. um, there's a logical order here to be got and to be mastered and to be systematic and okay. underpinned. So Botvinnik in like the 50s was the master who trained um, uh, Gary Kasparov, who was the 20-year reigning world champion, maybe one of the best chess masters ever. So Botvinnik, he basically, in the 50s, the whole, so basically all the world championships were, all the contenders were all Russians. So it was Russians, winners and contenders, and it was pure dominance for many, many, many uh, decades, really, in the mm -hmm. 20th century. 
and it was broken by Bobby Fischer famously in the 70s, an American, mm -hmm. at the height of the Cold War. And um, anyway, that whole school is a parallel cultural development to what you're talking about, this systematic rationality, the faith <laughs> in that, and that, and that, and, that and kind of you, And would you associate Fischer with sort of the breakdown of that way of thinking? I would say he was one of the best geniuses ever and maybe the best player ever. There's strong arguments for it. And he just exemplifies genius. He just at the chessboard is genius. Like some of the moves he makes, computers can't see. And that's that's when they're asked to give the move, they don't give it. But he finds these incredibly beautiful combinations, which I think are kind of angelic principalities or muses of some form of logical order mm -hmm. that he can envision somehow through mm -hmm. through no east a noetic capacity mm -hmm. um anyway so fish is brilliant 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 but i think what i'm trying to say is there's a spirit a living human spirit yeah. that's the bleeding edge of the game which is more than just systematic rationality yeah. or more than just imaginative emotional romantic moves from the 19th century It's not just romantic, it's not just logical, rational. There is a certain living genius in the game. And that living yeah. genius is intuition. Like yeah. Carlson, best in the world, has said himself it is intuition. And he gets frustrated with interviewers who ask him, how do you do it? How do you make these world-class moves all the time? And he's like, it's just intuition. There's a, like, I can't explain it to you. I just know that that is the right move every time sorry mm -hmm. but like that is just what i know that's yeah. how i know it and like that's his position and i think that's a really beautiful segue into these topics around ai and consciousness and machine mm -hmm. learning and stuff like that because yeah but beautiful yeah, so, to consider. and to come back to your point about the bifurcation so like he so you have especially yeah, in europe you have phenomenological thinkers who try to deal with that problem, uh, let's say more directly through philosophy, and it happens much earlier than what you see in North America, uh, or even and even in England, like people who are still positivists longer than in continental Europe, but you still wind up with like those two currents coming back together again, like in an interesting way, because in the English speaking world, I see that there's all there's a comeback of classical metaphysics as well because mm -hmm. like with all of the problems that i mentioned earlier so okay we try not to give too much place to human consciousness but mm -hmm. you wind up with structures that are super classical so we already talked that even since galileo people would give an, would give ontological reality to mathematical patterns and then initially people were trying to just like reduce everything down to particles, but now it doesn't work anymore. What you have at the very bottom is just potential. So what you start to have is a world of heaven and earth, you know, where you have like abstract mathematical patterns and you mm. have concrete potential at the bottom of everything. Yeah. So you end up having back a kind of hierarchy. And with this hierarchy of patterns and potential, you can start to talk about human consciousness that has a special place in that hierarchy because we have access somehow to those abstract mathematical principles, but we're also material. So you you can sort of 
We also have abstract, we have access to higher intelligences who can discourse with us mm-hmm. in some yep. way through prayer and through asking. Yep. And like that's yep. what reading is and is calling upon ancestral patterns of the past to yeah. inform. Yeah, or like even like concretely, like writing to your mayor is writing to a higher intelligence and or b- being arrested by a police. That's also like having a higher being speaking. I had it with my PhD application recently. It all just felt like prayer. It was yeah. <laughs> literally like it was prayer and then it was answered. It was like, oh, cool. Like, but it, but it was it was that whole thing. It was like yeah. the pattern of the institution. Yeah. So it, it's funny because like you end up healing the bifurcation some other way. Like you can do what the phenomenologist did and it's really the role that Pajol has taken, where you start really from human experience and you try not to get too far away from it. Uh, or if you go the route of, okay, well, we'll explore things that are besides human experience because there seems to be something stable in mathematics. Uh, but if you keep pushing that, you wind up creating a, a hierarchy that functions the same way that phenomenology functions in the end. So it's it's interesting, like the, the, those two paths. Um, yeah, but I, I guess you, you're more attracted by the phenomenology uh, itself and not so much, I mean, not so much, not as directly by the, let's say, classical hierarchy that isn't as directly phenomenological. Um, how do you mean? So you, how do you mean the classical hierarchy isn't phenomenological? Yeah, well, let's see what, what I talked about earlier. It's not as directly phenomenological. So, because I made the point without talking about human consciousness, at least directly. Like I talked about potential, I talked about patterns, and then human, the human mind winds up having a special place in that hierarchy. And it's the place through which we enter. Let's say we can say that, but we sort of recognize it almost as a, as a surprise at the end because I was really engaged in abstract metaphysics, you know, something fairly far from, at least on the face of it, at least fairly far from immediate phenomenology. And I was more using, let's see, what, what kind of ontology does science give us? But then at the end, I wind up with like a structure that I think can map well with what you find in phenomenology, but I didn't just engage fully in phenomenological reflection from the start. Mm-hmm. Sure, don't know if that makes sense. Mm. Well, I don't know, phenomenology has just been particularly important for me personally. Like, mm-hmm. I read a book called The Sacred and the Profane by Mircea Eliada. Yeah. <coughs> a really important book for me. And one that's very um, phen- phenomenological, really. He's talking about mm-hmm. the revelation of the sacred as being ontologically foundational. And mm-hmm. um, I was fully behind that. And I think, like, mm-hmm. listening to Peterson, reading Eliada... And that was a real important conceptual platform to listen to what Pajot was saying. And mm-hmm. like, to take the Lord of Spirits stuff seriously yeah. and all of these different things like that. Um, and it all comes from having this phenomenological approach, which Jung himself had. Um, mm-hmm. Wait a minute, JP. I'm just yep. gonna... Just, I've just got to keep my ear out just because I've got these books around. Yeah, um, yeah that's good. Yeah, we're talking about phenomenology and uh, 
the other way yeah. of getting to the, the structure. Eliado, yeah. Eliado Peterson both convinced. I thought the phenomenology piece really interesting. I've just called this in personal and some Heidegger, so I'm going to be trying to read, read through both of those. And some Corbin, uh, Alone with the Alone. And he's immediately on the first page mentioned phenomenology. I think it's, look, I just think it's um, a crucial and important philosophical language which is, is afforded to us, really. And it is so much, so pivotal in all of these conversations. And that's what I think. I think it's a general category, a universal category shared by all thinkers in this space, um, talking about these kind of topics within religion. And there's a logical point of divergence where if you deny certain axioms for the phenomenological worldview, and people do, and people have attempted it, and there's real tensions and criticisms uh, to be explored there, I think. If you do that, then you branch out into a fundamentally different philosophy of religion, viewpoint of religion. I think you're, you're, is it possible that your input isn't the same as before? I think your sound used to be slightly better before um, you went up, so I don't know. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah, I mean, it was still okay, but it wasn't as good as before, I think. Oh, uh, sorry. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not, it's not really for me. I still hear you, but yeah, for okay. people who might listen. Cool. Yeah, but yeah, I think I see what you mean. I more see it as a, yeah, it's definitely a danger, I think. If you don't grant those, if you don't grant those philosophical, let's if you don't grant those phenomenological moves, it's still possible to get back to something similar through what I mentioned earlier, like exploring, okay, well, if we deny it, let's see what happens. And we found out that you get into problems and you wind up reinstating the same kind of hierarchy. Um, so I think it's possible to deny it from the start, but then still come back around. But it's definitely like risky. Because um, like once you start looking, let's say outside of human experience, you can, sort of get lost at other layers. So let's see when I was speaking about the hierarchy earlier, let's see if I, I said, okay, well, I won't just take, we'll do the Galilean move. Let's see, we won't just take human perception as like the building block for our epistemology, we'll take math. Well, then you're starting to look at events, like at, at the events, just abstract patterns. And you could just stay there and be like an idealist. Or like you can do the move that many people made of be being materialist. So we're going to use math, but just to look at the fundamental building blocks of reality. And we won't talk too much about the ontological status of mathematics. We, we won't be mathematical plainness. We just won't talk about it. You know, we'll say that there are particles and we describe them with laws, but those laws don't necessarily exist. So you could get lost at that basic layer of reality. Um, but I think that if you like start from those different issues in the hierarchy and you just keep looking and try to fix the problems that you see there, like you, you'll end up finding that there are real problems and you need to get back those different layers. And by the time you do that, you will sort of wind back up at the same place as the phenomenologist started from. But now you still like, you can keep that old hierarchy, but now it fits within I don't know if it fits within, but you, but now it's in relationship, let's say, with your phenomenological existence. 
So that's why, like, even when I speak to Jonathan, for instance, we come from very different standpoints and we wind up still understanding one another. Because I took, I took the whole route of like looking at, like getting stuck at, let's say, the mathematical or the material and it's through, through time working through those philosophical issues that I ended up finding, well, okay, I mean, if I want to deny phenomenology, then I end up with that whole hierarchy. But then I wind up speaking with Pajot easily because like he, he took phenomenology and within phenomenology, you can see that hierarchy going on as well. So we sort of have two different starting points, but we can still talk to one another nicely at the end. Like you, you'll still see that uh, like the, those different paths end up having different tendencies. Like Jonathan is much better at pointing out human level patterns, you can say, like analyzing stories and like all, all different kinds of human level things. But it's, it, it'll be easier for me to speak about atoms and like all of those different layers of reality exhibit the same kinds of symbolism. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to make that point of like, I'm if you bifurcate, atoms, you can still come back. Because I think the atomic structure is like a mystery and like there's a real mon monadic element to it. If you go to Greek, the monad from, is it Pythagoras? I think it is Pythagoras and maybe Parmenides or Heraclitus as well. This, this idea of the mystical monad, like mm -hmm. the one, like, and it's just there in an atom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is what the modern idea of the atom is that it is a monad. Okay, guys, it is a monad. <laughs> like, just look at it. Um, so I love that. I love that logos. It is a very direct window into, into the pattern nature of things, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, All right. I don't know if yeah. you have more questions. I should probably go soon. Um, Let's wrap it up here for now. And then yeah. I'd love to I'd love to just continue speaking, JP. That was really cool. That was awesome. Yeah, yeah that was fun. Yeah, we should we should uh, do this from time to time. We can reach out again uh, when we have an idea of what to discuss, but this was fun. Cool. Thanks, JP. Thanks for your time. Thanks a lot for having me. Bye, Sam. Yeah.